Well, good morning. It's nice to hear even more response this morning. Uh, it seems like uh, over the summer, the, uh, our, our attendance has been growing. That's been exciting. Uh, all of you who are here live, just really exciting to see your faces. For those of you who are joining us um, online, we're really excited that you're joining us too. And we know there's lots of legitimate reasons why people are doing it online and can't be here in person. Uh, but uh, if you can be here in person, and, and you're, uh, then we'd love to have you here as well. But uh, we're pumped that all of us are together in this moment. I'm, I have the privilege of doing the second last message in a series that we've been doing all summer from the books of First and Second Peter. And today I'm going to talk about a very uh, uh, interesting topic. And uh, I'm going to just get right into it. Peter starts chapter, or P- chapter 2 starts with a verse from Peter with some bad news in it. In fact, there's lots of bad news in this chapter, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll go through it together. So chapter 2 of Second Peter starts with bad news in the very first verse. Let me read you the verse. But there were also false prophets among the people. So he's talking about in the, old, in the olden days, in the Old Testament, in the past. Just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. So bad news, part one. There will be false teachers among you introducing destructive heresies. Wow, I love the promises of Scripture. That's so exciting. Not that exciting, is it? There will be false teachers among you introducing destructive heresies. So... How many of you have heard false teaching at any point in your life? You say, I've heard false teaching. I'm talking about teaching about, like, God and not just te- false teaching about some other topic, but, you know, spiritual teaching that's false, okay? Lots of hands. Let me just tell you, you've all heard false teaching. You've all heard false teaching. You may not have spotted it. You might not have realized that's what it is, but you've all heard false teaching at some point or another because we are hearing uh, false ideas again and again in social media, in regular news media, in books, in magazines, in personal conversations. False teaching is everywhere. And um, in the verse we read, it's called destructive heresy. So what's a heresy? I like Tim Keller's definition of a heresy. He says, heresy is a view of ultimate reality that is wrong and therefore bad for you. Heresy is a view of ultimate reality that's wrong, and therefore, it's bad for you. So if you base your life on things that aren't true, you usually have bad outcomes. I think most of us know that that's, that's reality. You can say, well, I just be- want to believe these things are true. But if it's not truth, it's not dependable, it usually comes with bad outcomes. I trusted in this. It failed me, of course, because it wasn't true. So what, what do we know about the heresies that Peter was addressing. Do you remember, Second Peter, we've been teaching the last few weeks, is sort of Peter's last will and testament. It's his last commentary, his last words, because he knows soon he's probably going to die. Nero, the Roman, Empire is pro- in the Roman emperor, is going to probably take his life. So what would you say in your last, uh, your last few words? Well, one of the things he wanted to go after was he saw the rising up in the churches. It was happening already, even just maybe 30 years after Jesus died, already false teachers had come on the scene and they were spreading these heresies, a warped view of ultimate reality that was bad for the people. 
So what do we know about their heresy? Well, from last week, we know that they denied that Jesus was coming again in power. So Jesus had said he would come again, and, um, and they said, nope, that's not true. And that was one of the, the heresies. And from this verse, we read also that he, they were even denying the Lord who bought them. Now, it's quite an interesting phrase. God has two claims on every person's life. God has two claims on every person's life. First, he made you. He created you. He designed you. And he was delighted with your design. By the way, if you don't look like it, if you look in the mirror and say, I wish I'd looked a little different, God's delighted with your design. And this is just temporary. Really, this life is a breath. It'll be over soon. You'll have a glorified body like Jesus. That's something to look forward to. I'm looking forward to it. I don't know about you. Um, but they denied the Lord who bought them. God had a claim on their life too. Not just that he created them, but that he redeemed them. Now, redeem them, that's a church word. What does it mean? It means that in order to, because we were, all of humanity uh, went its own way and got into sin and, and rejected God, Jesus needed to come, die on the cross, take our sins upon him so that we could have, in exchange, his righteousness, his goodness, his obedience to God. So basically, we got his account, he got ours. He was punished for something he never did, and we received a benefit for something we never deserved. And we have the opportunity to be in relationship with God. That's incredible. It's incredible. But they said they deny the one who bought them. He used his blood to buy them, to, to pay for their sin. And then they've denied him. So they've denied many things about him. In fact, this is what heresy often is. Heresy is often denying key important things about Jesus, about how God has put together a rescue plan for us to come into relationship with God. Those are the core of our faith. In fact, that's one of the key features of false teaching, is it denies the core of our faith. It denies the essential truths that, we, uh, that people need to know to build their lives on something solid, to build their lives on the truth. So false teaching denies the core of our faith. Now, here at Hillcrest Church, we have a statement of faith. Most churches do. They have a statement of faith. You can find it on the website or different places, and it'll outline different things that we think are essentials. We say, this is essential, this is essential, this is essential, different things. And um, we, we spell them out. If you took the Hillcrest membership class, we'd, we'd give you a, a copy of that statement of faith, and then we have a statement about the statement, which is pretty interesting. And this is the statement... In its, in, it, in its essence, it says, in the essentials, so some things are essential. In the essentials, we have unity. That's what we want to do. We want to, the things that are absolutely at the core of our faith, Jesus, salvation, we're sinners, we need a savior, all those things. We need to have unity in that. I mean, if a church is going to go forward, if it's going to bring a message to the world around it, you need to have the same, sort of singing from the same song sheet, so to say. You need that. But then the statement goes on. It says, in essentials, we have unity, but in non-essentials, we have liberty. So there might be some things that are sort of on the fringes. They're not the core, but they're sort of like, hey, I think this verse means this. Oh, I think it means this. In those things, we have liberty. We say, okay, well, as long as it's not really at the core of the faith, as long as it's not denying that Jesus is the Son of God, that he's come to save us, uh, denying who God is and, and, and what he's done, if it's over here and it's sort of like, well, different interpretations, we have liberty in that. So we have a wonderfully diverse church in that lots of people believe different things about some of the non-essentials. And we're, we're, that's really cool. Like, we, we, okay, you see that that way, I see it that way. You know what? 
We might even be very passionate about how we see it, but it's not a, a, a deal breaker. It's not a deal breaker. We can still partner together in the essentials because the essentials are what we're about, the core of our faith. And then the last part of the statement says, in everything, no matter what people believe, even if people believe things that is false teaching or is an error or just not right at all, we still show charity to them as individuals. Right? It doesn't mean we embrace that that's true, but we just still love them and we're, we're meant to show charity to everybody. So if that, if that hopefully is, is something helpful for us. So in the essentials, we have unity. In non-essentials, we have liberty. And in everything, we show charity. So there's room in the family of God for disagreement about less essential matters. And I think we should be pretty careful about calling other people a heretic. That's what you would call them if they had heresies. Heresies, heretic. Uh, you probably shouldn't throw that word around. Maybe that word you never heard before. You never even thought of throwing it around till now. Uh, but I don't think we should throw that out on social media too quickly. And I don't think we should be jumping the gun to, to label people that way as a false teacher or anything. But when it comes to Jesus and God's reconciliation plan for mankind, it's essential that we understand that correctly. Jesus is God. He's our Savior. Died for our sins. Rose again. We are sinners and need saving. And we can be saved by trusting what Jesus did for us on the cross. We, we acknowledge that it's necessary. I needed it. I'm a sinner. I needed his forgiveness and leadership in my life. And what he did was necessary for us, but it's also enough for us to be made right with God. And, and you know what? We often... I'm going to just... There's a prayer we often pray here, and I'm just going to read it to you really quickly. But it's just a simple thing. It reminds us again and again. Dear Father, thank you that you love me and sent Jesus to die on the cross for my sin. I put my trust in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Now help me live a life that honors you by the power of the Holy Spirit. We often pray that prayer together at the church. It's a prayer for some people. It's the first step of faith for them to pray that prayer. And for many of us, it's just something we remind ourselves of the truth at the core of our faith. False teaching uh, denies the core of our faith, but it's also teaching that leads to immorality. Another way you can spot false teaching is it leads to immorality. If your ultimate reality is wrong, it will lead you to outcomes for you and for others that are bad, right? But immoral outcomes, immoral outcomes, and I'll say more about that as we get into the, the bad news part two, which is coming soon, okay? So, but that's another thing you can spot. Does it lead to immorality, this teaching? Then it's probably false teaching. If you want to be able to spot false teaching, or heresies as they're called, my advice to you is get to know God and get to know his word. Now, I think I've got one in here somewhere. Oh yeah, okay. So I've got a $5 bill. You know, if you go to the Bank of Canada website, you can, you can find descriptions of all the things they've done to make our plastic money uh, the way it is. It's got little holographic things and see-through things and windows and, and uh, you know, different things you can hold up to the light and see so that you can really get familiar with what real money looks like. Now, Americans don't think this is real money. They think our money is monopoly money because it's colored. It's not all green. But uh, I sort of like our money. It's fun. The thing about it, though, is if you want to know what counterfeit money looks like, you don't study counterfeit money. You study the real thing. You get familiar with the real thing. You look at the real thing. You examine the real thing. You see all the features that they've built into the real thing, which are hard to duplicate. So when a counterfeit comes along, you can easily go, hey, where's that? This isn't right. I know that that's fake. It's the same with the Word of God. If you study the Word of God for yourself, it's one of the best safeguards against heresy. You study the Word of God for yourself, and then when something comes along, it can be a simple error that leads people astray. 
Simply just not knowing the Bible very well can, can leave you a little bit vulnerable in that way. And so I, it's always better to just get stronger in that discipline of reading the Bible and knowing the features, that it, it, how it describes God, how it describes his work in the world, and that is a, pro- a protection for us. So, bad news one was that there will be false teachers among you introducing destructive heresies. It's in our world. We can't get away from it. But bad news part two there will be false teachers among you who will practice depraved conduct. And that's what it says in verse number 2. Um, let me just uh, read verses 2 and 3 to you, actually. It says, Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. So Peter knew the real story about Jesus. He was one of the ones who was closest to Jesus, one of his absolute closest friends, and so he knew the real story. But here, these guys had come into some of the churches that Peter had been involved with, and they started to make up other stories and say that Peter's stories, that those were the made-up stories. They were, they were sort of clever in the way that they were fabricating sort of a new narrative. And so that's why Peter wrote this letter to say, no, 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 we were eyewitnesses of Jesus' majesty. We saw him at the transfiguration. We were eyewitnesses of his resurrection. We know that Jesus is God, transfiguration, and that he's alive, resurrection. And so don't be fooled by these guys making up this different story, especially the story about the fact Jesus is not coming back. Jesus promised he would, he, he described his death before he died and also told us in three days he'd rise again, and he did. When a person does that, you trust that person, right? If you could do that, if you say, I'm going to tell you I'm going to die, Steve, and then I'm going to rise again three days later, I'd say, I don't believe you. And then if you did it, I'd say, okay, now I'm starting to believe, right? And so, so they were wanting to give solid answers to those who were just making up new fabricated narratives for the church, new fab- fabricated stories. And now, what are some of the results of their depraved conduct? Their depraved conduct. Uh, well, it says in the scripture that many fault will follow them into this. They'll imitate them. They'll follow them into, and, and the way of truth Will, fall, will come into disrepute. In other words, a bad reputation for Christians, a bad reputation for the church, and worst of all, a bad reputation for Jesus, the Savior of the world, the one that loves all mankind, the one who people are meant to be in relationship with. So it's a potential roadblock for people hearing the good news that Jesus loved them and died for them and doesn't want to, wants the sin roadblock between them to be removed. That's the main roadblock, our human pride, not wanting to admit that we're sinners and that we need God. But now, if the people who follow Jesus are living such sexually immoral lives, and well, immoral in many ways, more than just sexual, but immoral lives in many ways, then it's another roadblock. Well, if that's what Christianity is about, who needs it, right? And so then, that's another roadblock to, the, to, to people experiencing the transformation that Jesus brings. The other part is that many people are exploited by their fabricated stories. It says, in their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Now, when I first read greed, I thought, oh, money. But, you know, when you read the whole passage, you realize there's three pretty big areas that, they, that they're greedy for. And they're the same ones that I think every leader in every, in every place of influence experiences. The temptation of money, sex, and power. That's what the false teachers were exploiting. They were greedy for money, sex, and power. And and let me just sum it up. They wanted money without working. They wanted sex without commitment. 
or without marriage, and they wanted authority without responsibility. And there's a word for all this. It's called stealing. It's stealing or exploitation because they're taking what's not legitimately theirs. And that's what they were doing. So what did Jesus say about spotting a false teacher? Jesus, taught, Jesus was the one who originally taught Peter to look for these kind of things. And I'll just read you some of Jesus' words about how to spot a false teacher. Have you ever heard the term, a wolf in sheep's clothing? You ever heard that? Yeah, it's not Shakespeare, although Shakespeare gave us lots of phrases. This one's from Jesus. It's the Bible. Okay, let's read it. Matthew 7, 15. It says, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. Thus, by their fruit you will recognize them. Twice in this passage, Jesus says the key. By their fruit, you will recognize them. By their fruit, you'll recognize them. I bought a whole bunch of fruit trees this year. I bought, um, I, I wanted to have fruit for all my kids. So I have, uh, for my older two boys, I've got them each um, a Saskatoon tree. And then for my next boy, I bought him a plum tree. And then my uh, daughter, I bought her a, a set of Hascaps. One's called Beauty, that's hers. And one's called The Beast, which is mine. Anyhow, so we have, we have all these trees. My wife doesn't have a fruit tree yet, but I haven't quite decided what what she needs. So we'll have to have more conversation about what we're going to plant. But when you buy fruit trees, the first year you don't expect much fruit, especially the plum tree. It's the biggest one. And I thought, we're not getting anything this year. And sure enough, we didn't get anything on the plum tree this year. But I know over time, we probably will. Now, what if in a couple years, that plum tree fruits and it's apples? I'll say, oh, they, uh, they shafted me at the store. There was a big mistake. I thought for sure I was going to get plums, but it's actually an apple tree, right? I wouldn't say, oh, it's probably still a plum tree, just there's apples on it. That would be irrational. You will know them by their fruit, the fruit that comes out of their lives, how they live. That's how you'll know, and that's how Jesus taught Peter to know whether they were false prophets or false teachers or heretics or whatever, or, sheep, or wolves in sheep's clothing. So how do you spot a false teacher? By their fruit. The problem with fruit being the test is it takes time. I won't know until fruit comes out on the plum tree whether it's really a plum tree. There's a label on it that says plum tree, but I won't know. So it takes time. The other thing is it takes proximity. You've got to get close to a plum tree. I mean, you've got to get close to any tree to find out if it's got fruit. So this is a little bit of an interesting thing for us. We live in a day where there are a thousand excellent, well, amazing ministries online that you can go watch. And in this season, a lot of people have been doing that because they haven't had the opportunity to come to a church or, or to be a part of a body. So they're watching a lot online. And in some ways, it's wonderful. You've got this buffet of wonderful teaching. At the same time, how do you know they're the fruit? How do you know? So I'd recommend to anyone, especially if you're watching me online and you're still trying to figure out whether you're going to go to church someday or not, go to a church that... that where you can get to know the leadership a bit. That's what my recommendation would be. Go to, go to the church where you can get to know the leadership a bit so you can expect to inspect the fruit a bit, right? Um, you can't, I can't inspect the fruit of somebody who's making a streaming podcast from a thousand miles away. I don't have a relationship with them. 
It might still be good what they're doing. It might be good what they're teaching. But you know what? I think everybody should be a part of a local church. It doesn't have to be Hillcrest, but a local church that teaches the Bible and where you have an opportunity to get to know the leadership a little bit. And so you can inspect the fruit. That's one of the ways to help yourself from being deceived or prevent being deceived from a, by false teachers. So, this church is going to go through a bit of a, we're going through a transformational journey this, this year. Last year we took our church through uh, what, we, what was called the story. It was, a, it was 30 weeks where we just walked our way through the Bible front to back. We didn't read the entire Bible, but we read enough of it so that you, people get the gist of the chronological story of the Bible. And, um, and of course, it's one big story. It's not a whole bunch. It's one big overarching story of what God is doing to rescue people from sin and bring them into relationship with himself. It was great to go through on that journey. This is really phase two, what we're going to do this year. So last year, it was like, to know the story of the Bible is great. And I think it's really important. But then, how do you live the story of the Bible? How do you live the story of the Bible? Because you can go to the Bible chronologically, and that's one way to do it, and it's an excellent way to do it. Another way to go through the Bible is systematically. And systematically means you're going to look for the main things that it teaches. The main things that it teaches. That's what we're going to do this year. We're going to go on a, uh, a journey together. It's called Believe. Basically, we're going to study the, the ten sort of foundational beliefs. I mean, there's lots in the Bible, but there's ten really foundational beliefs in the Bible that, that sort of form a bedrock of belief for Christians. This is what Christians believe. And then we're going to look on top of that, there's another layer, and that's out of what you believe, what do you do? Right? Because it's not just something that's just in your head and it never affects your life. What do we do? And then we're going to take it to the next level because out of what you believe and out of what you do, who are you becoming? Who are you becoming? So we're going to go on this journey together this next year. And I didn't know that this what I'm going to read this morning would line up so well with it. But here we're seeing the opposite. We're seeing people who believe something, do something, and become something, and it's not pretty. So let's find these false teachers. What, what do they believe? Well, we find out that there's no, they have no fear of God's judgment that they, and that they despise authority. Let me read you verse 10. It says, This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desires of the flesh and despise authority. Bold and arrogant, they're not afraid to heap abuse on celestial beings. So, a few things that comes out in, the, in these passages is that they, they, don't, they despise authority. They're not willing to be under authority. And you know, that's a big one because uh, Jesus, there's a great story about Jesus where um, a military guy, I think it was a centurion, comes to Jesus and he says, my, my child is sick, will you come to my house? And, and uh, oh, uh, wait, wait, my child is sick, that's it. And Jesus says, I'll come to your house. And then he says, no, you don't need to come to my house. I, too, am a man under authority. What was he saying? As a military man, there's people over me. I submit to their authority. And because of that, I have authority. Centurion, he was over 100 men. I have authority because I'm under authority. I get, no, no, Jesus, I understand. You don't need to come to my house. Just say the word, and he'll be healed. I recognize Jesus he recognized the spiritual dynamic, that Jesus was under the authority of his father. Jesus said again and again, I only do what my father is doing. So I, he, Jesus was under the authority of his father, and then Jesus was walking in great authority because of that. If you want to have authority in your life, you need to do two things. One, you need to take the responsibility that comes with that authority. right? Responsibility and authority, they go hand in hand. 
little bit of responsibility, a little bit of authority. A lot of responsibility, a lot more authority, right? That's just how it works. But then you need to be under authority. You need to be under authority if you want to walk in authority. I have, Steve Atkins, I have no authority in this church in myself. None. Not one iota. But I submit myself and get under authority of the elders of the church. That's who I'm responsible to. And then they delegate authority to me to walk in. And that happens with me. I have a, a team that is incredible, amazing team. And I delegate authority to them because they're under authority. And they delegate authority to others. And throughout our whole organization, that's how it works. So if you want to be in authority, get under authority. Because you don't have... An, uh, how much authority do you have just on your own? You have... You have you want to be under the authority. So they didn't want to be under human authority. They despised authority. And it seems like they didn't fear God at all. They heaped abuse on celestial beings. So it seems to me like there's no fear of God in their life. I've seen this on display in leaders' lives. I, I, I don't have to, enough time to tell you my stories. But I've seen that where I've seen leaders who don't have any regard or respect or Fear, a regular, like a, a healthy respect for who God is. That he's coming, he's coming again, and he's going to judge the world. I, I've seen that in leaders, and it's a scary thing, and it leads to uh, terrible things. So this is where they're at. No fear of God's judgment. They despise authority. So there's no restraint in their life. There's no accountability in their life. And what did it, that was what they believed, but what did it lead them to do? Well, in uh, verses 13 and 14, it says, they'll be paid back with harm for the harm they've done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. I'm not sure what carousing all means in that, but it's probably not good. They're blots, they are blots and blemishes, reveling in the pleasure, in their pleasures while they feast with you. Now, Peter is just really getting heated with his, his uh, language here. So it's really, he obviously does not like the deceitfulness that's happening. He says, with eyes full of adultery... <laughs> Eyes full of adultery, what a phrase. They never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed and a cursed brood. Ooh. That's what they do. Carousing, reveling. Eyes full of adultery. Experts in greed. Seducing the unstable. Wow. That's quite a list. And then what do they become? What do they become? Verse 12 says, These people blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They're like unreasoning animals, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed. And like animals, they too will perish. So, I'll keep reading. Verse 17, These people are springs without water and mists driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. For they mouth empty, boastful words. And by appealing to the lustful desires of the flesh, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom while they, while they themselves are slaves of depravity. For people who are slaves, for people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. So I, I want to put a few things together. Creatures of instinct. What does it mean to be a creature of instinct? It means you don't reason. You're an unreasoning animal, he says. You don't reason and think, how should I live my life differently? No, you just Instinct, 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 instinct. I'm hungry, I eat. I'm thirsty, I drink. Whatever. But humans are different. Humans can stop and say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Maybe in this case it's, it's wise to deny myself eating that. Maybe it's wise to deny myself taking that. 
you know, something that doesn't belong to you. Maybe it's wise to deny myself sleeping with that person who doesn't belong to me. Maybe it's wise to deny myself taking that power that's not mine to take. But no, they're acting like creatures of instinct. And what they're doing is they're proclaiming, be free like me. Don't, don't deny yourself anything. Don't restrain yourself in any way. Be free like me. But Peter says they're not free. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. When you refuse to deny yourself anything, you become a slave to your own impulses. You become a slave. You can't even... It's, it becomes an addictive cycle, really. So many people are, and I find it very interesting, a lot of people who start down the roads with addictive substances, the beginning of it is freedom. I'm free to do this. This should be legal. This is good for me. Who says it's wrong? But then you meet them 10 years later and you go, you're not free, you're enslaved. You can't quit, you need this. There's a law of diminishing returns. The high you used to get, you don't get anymore. Now you just need it to get back to close to zero. You've become a slave, but you start out proclaiming freedom, and that's exactly what Simon is saying. Follow me, live like me, live in all this, this freedom, and they have become enslaved. Contrast with the pattern that we're pursuing this fall with the believe journey that we're going on as a church. We want people to think like Jesus. We want people to act like Jesus because we want people to become like Jesus. That's what I want for my life. I want to become more like Jesus. And I would want everyone to experience a journey where they see a transformation in their character and in their, and what they do so that they can become more like Jesus, which is God's design for us. So I'd encourage you after the service today, take a book from the book table there. The books are one free per family. If you want more than one, I think you can leave a donation or something. I'm not sure if there's a donation uh, thing there, but one free per family. And uh, it's, it's, gonna, it's the book that we'll be reading through Scripture with together. And then we'll have time together as a church to teach on it. And then I would encourage you to get into a life group or maybe you're already in a cohort group or a family bubble or maybe you do watch parties together, whatever it is, but to come together uh, with other people to discuss the kind of things that we're, that we're talking about and see, a, see a, a transformation in your own life to become more like Jesus. All right, lots of bad news. Let's end with the good news. There are three things, I think, that stand against false teachers. Three things that stand against false teachers. I already said reading the Word was a really important part, studying the Word. I think personal accountability is, is important. And you can do this this morning. You don't need anyone else to help you with this. You can do this this morning. First Timothy 4.16 says, Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you'll save both yourselves and your hearers. Watch your life, what you do, your conduct, and your doctrine, what you believe. What you do and what you believe. Watch it. That's what we're going to do this year. We're going to evaluate what we believe, what we do, because that's shaping who we're becoming. And if you do that, it'll be good for you, but it'll be also good for the people you influence and interact with. So ask yourself questions like, how do I treat people? How do I treat money? Is my life morally pure? Uh, as a church, as our, our church staff team, once a quarter, we will take accountability questions, and guys will go off with the guys, and girls will go off with the girls, and we'll work our way through questions about money, sex, and power, and etc. Asking ourselves pointed questions, because we want to make sure that we're watching our life and doctrine closely, and not getting into a false way of living or a false way of teaching. 
So let me just walk through some of the, those, those three sticky areas. Money. money. There's nothing wrong with money. But the love of money is the root of all evil. Not money, but the love of money. When you make it your ultimate goal. Godliness, the Bible says that godliness is a means, godliness with contentment. So if you have pursuing God as your main thing, and, a content, and the contentment that that can bring to your life, that's great gain. That's a wonderful place to be in life. Say, I don't have a lot of money, but I've got God, and this life will be over soon, and I've got contentment about where I'm at. You're sitting good. Other people think, man, if I could just get more money, I'd be sitting good. And, and I realize there's, we have needs, and there's bills to pay, and that's a reality in our life and a worry. But the love of money will lead us into evil things. And godliness, and you know, I, I, let me just touch on one really quickly here. One of the teachings that can go sideways on us is when we talk about prosperity. We talk about prospering as, as a person. If you pursue God, like if you took the teachings of God's word, you pursue God, and you become more like Jesus, and you start showing the fruit of the Spirit in your life, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, all those things, you probably become the kind of person that people would want to hire. You'd be like a model employee, right? You're good to people, you work hard, you, you know, you've got patience for difficult customers. Wow, you'd probably be the kind of person, you'd probably do well. You'd probably be the kind of person that people would come to if you ran a business, right? You probably, so when you follow God, you're pursuing God, you might have a side benefit of prospering in some ways. In fact, I think that that would be most, for most people who are transformed to become like Jesus, there's lots of people who want to hire Jesus to work in their company, right? And give them great responsibility and give them great authority and walk in those things and give them a bigger paycheck. So if you follow Jesus, you may prosper. But I think what happens is this gets tilted on side when people say, well, if I, can I get prosperity if I follow Jesus? Instead of making this your main pursuit, and this happens, they make this their main pursuit and see if they can use God to get it done. It's close, but it's not right. It's not the truth. The reality is, God does bless us. I mean, everybody who has breath today, if you're breathing right now, that's God's breath you're breathing. You're lucky. You're blessed. God has breath. But lots of people who follow Jesus don't experience... uh, that everything goes hunky-dory in their life. Yes, they lose loved ones. Yes, their children die. Yes, they get sick. Yes, they face financial woes. Some starve. Hebrews 11 says, some were sawn in two. I can't even imagine that. Others, others, you know, can point to, wow, God's blessed me in so many material ways and real ways, and I just want to pass it on, and that's great. But the reality is, It's not a guarantee. It's not a guarantee. We do go through trials. We do go through suffering. So if you're a Christian and you go through some deep, painful suffering, that isn't a moment where you should go, whoa, God, I thought you promised me. Well, if this is how it's going to be, so this is a challenge for us. If this is how it's going to be, well, then why be a Christian? Because Jesus, I think we had wrong expectations from the beginning. He said, come follow me. You might have to give up all sorts of things. You have to carry your cross. You have to deny yourself. Die to yourself daily. Those are all things Jesus told people to expect. So if we had those expectations going in and then 
a loved one dies or we get sick or financial calamity comes, we wouldn't say, oh, you, you promised different things, different outcomes. We'd say, oh, no, we, we expected to carry our cross. We expected to deny ourselves and to die to ourselves. And, as, and we know, as a result, we have God for all eternity. We have eternal life with him. We have the goal of our life, and that is to uh, be forever united with our Creator and our Redeemer. So, the love of money gets us off track. So a personal question I asked myself when I read this passage, I asked myself, am I, so this is personal accountability, am I pursuing laziness and schemes to get money versus working hard with integrity and trusting the Lord and others and and living with contentment? Where am I at? How about the topic of sex? Sex is good. Of course it's good. It's given by God. It was his his idea. It was his idea. He's the inventor of sex. And it's meant to bring great, great good to our lives, children and pleasure and relational glue in our relationships, in our marriage. But sex was made only for marriage. Sex was made only for marriage, no other context. One of the biblical metaphors for sex is fire. Can a man heap fire into his lap, it says? That's the phrase. If sex is a fire, then marriage is its fireplace. That's where it belongs. That's where God created it for. And so a personal question to help us live truthfully and, to, and, to, uh, and teach truthfully as well, because they, they go hand in hand, is am I, do I see sex as, 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 uh, as it belongs in marriage? Do I see that? And one of the ways that you might not see it, so I am married, so here's a question I would ask myself. Am I imagining greener pastures? Or... Am I settled that this is where Jesus wants me to be in this relationship, in this marriage? And am I, instead of seeing the grass greener on the other side, am I watering the grass here? Am I working on this relationship? Am I putting in the hard work? Am I growing in my acceptance of my spouse over the years, who, by the way, is never going to (laughs) change? It's such bad news. I'm just helping you mature, really. Half of what will turn the corner, if you're in marriage crisis now, I tell this to couples all the time, half of what will turn the corner is hard work. You might not have done everything you could do. Ask me. If you think you've done everything you could possibly do, ask me. I'll tell you a few more things. Number two, acceptance. Yeah, you get into grieving when you look at your spouse and you thought, I thought by now they would have changed. I had such high hopes for them. I saw them as such a great fixer-upper. They don't even want to change. Yeah, join the club. Once you realize that, and you grieve that, you'll be sad for a while. And then you really look at them again and realize you were so lucky to marry them in the first place. They have goodwill towards you. They want it to be you and us, us two against the world. They want that. When you get there, your love will mature. Because you'll accept them in a whole new way. If you're in a funk in your marriage, talk to me. There's hope for you. Your hope, hope for your marriage. There's hope for your relationship. 
But not if you're looking outside. Not if you're saying, well, I just want sex. I just want it without commitment. Water your own lawn. Tend to your own relationship. You'll never regret the, effort, the investment you make in, in your own marriage. How about power? There's nothing wrong with power in its right place. But seeking power for itself corrupts good people, leaders and everyone. Right? If you want to, I told you already, you want to walk in authority, you've got to take on the appropriate amount of responsibility that comes with that authority. You can't just shirk that. And secondly, you've got to be under authority. So my personal question, the one I asked myself this week might be a little bit different, but I, I asked myself, am I elevating myself? Am I trying to take power or that I shouldn't be taking or touching? Am I appropriately under authority? And then, am I giving others credit for what they do and platform and influence for, what, for, their, for them? Those are good questions to ask ourselves. So that's a personal accountability is the first part. The second part is churches. Churches that, that, that know, enjoy, and live the Word of God. So we're really trying to be that kind of church here, just really getting into the Word of God, reading the Word, studying the Word, discussing the Word. That's, that'll help them keep us away from false teaching, but also that hold their leaders accountable. So I have an annual evaluation with the elder board that they sit me down and they walk me through my year and help me with good things. They, um, our, I told you our team does quarterly team accountability questions to walk through those things. Those are all good. Those are all good. Accountability is good. Let me say the third one, though. Ultimately, no human system of accountability is foolproof. I can fool myself. I can fool others. We can all do that. So what if false teachers get in charge and ruin a bunch of lives and they get away with it? Right in the middle of this chapter is the key verse, the key hope, the key promise. And it tells a story. There's a little bit about, here's, here's Noah. He was in an ungodly scenario where false teaching was everywhere. Lies were everywhere. And God rescued him. And here was Lot. And everyone around him was, was in sexual uh, immorality and all sorts of evil living and bad ideas and all this stuff. And, and, and God rescued him. And they said, if this is so... Then the Lord, this is verse 9, if this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. So Peter was very pointed. He is coming again. Jesus is coming again. And there's nobody who will stand before him on that day and, and have gotten away with it. You, don't, you know what? If you've been keeping... If you, if you've been under really bad leadership at some point, you might have a, 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 something in your drawer somewhere where you've kept the list of everything they did to you or did, period, and you're bitter about that experience. And let me just tell you, God knows everything that went on. God knows. God's keeping score. You don't have to. You can be set free from that. You don't have to live in bitterness because of that experience. You can let that go. You can shred that paper. If you're not holding on to it for some legal reason or something that you should hold on to it for, you can shred that paper. You don't have to let that consume you anymore. You can move past that. Because God knows how to rescue the godly from false teaching and false living. And that's our great hope. That's my great hope. God, if, I'm, if I get enamored with some sort of teaching that, that seems like it's, you know, 
wonderful in some ways, but it's not true. Will you rescue me? Would you rescue me? If my living, if I start to get off track and I start looking at other things as more precious than you are and I'm trying to make them my treasure or make you a means to get that treasure, God, will you rescue me? Will you rescue us? Because he does. Look to him and let him guide you and, be, and guide you into being established in truth, true teaching and true living. And let him hold the righteous, unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. Would you stand with me this morning? Lord, it seems like this passage talks a lot about the negative. Um, But I think the whole idea is just to guard us against error and deceit and lies and confusion so that we can have the good. We can have you. We can have the truth. Lord, I I thank you that um, you know how to rescue people even from lies, even from false teaching, even from, false, from those who would exploit them and manipulate them and, and deceive them. You know how to rescue. And so, Lord, we appeal to you. We appeal to you, Lord Jesus. Would you, I, I pray for my church first. Pray for Hillcrest. Lord, would you keep us on the right road? Would you keep us against error? Would you, would you help us to spot error quickly and, and discard it and just embrace the truth? And Lord, when temptations come in, in all, for all of us in the areas of money, sex, and power, I pray that we'd, we'd cry out to you, Lord Jesus. You will help us say no to temptation. You'll help us flee from uh, situations where uh, we are, we're tempted to take things that don't belong to us. And so we just look to you as the great rescuer. And Lord, we believe in your coming. We believe that you will come again. And that there's nobody, there's no sin that will just get, someone's going to get away with. Lord Jesus, if it isn't dealt with on the cross by your death, it'll be dealt with in judgment at the great white throne of judgment. So Lord, we just, we just trust that we're not going to stand before you someday and say, what about that person who got away with it? I think we're going to be overwhelmed with your mercy, your grace, your love for us, and the fact that we're heirs of eternal life and we didn't deserve it. You made us rich eternally. I'm not talking about money. I'm just talking that you give us yourself eternally. And no one can ever make us poor because we'll have you. So Lord, we, we, uh, we're not going to be scorekeepers. I don't even really want to be a heresy hunter. I want to be a truth seeker. I want to be one who just latches on to you. You're the author and the finisher of our faith. You're the core of our faith. Jesus, you're the one who, who uh, died for me and took my sin and, made, and, and, and in exchange, I've got your righteousness so I can stand before God and boldly approach the throne of grace. I didn't earn that and I don't deserve it, but it's mine because of Jesus. So Lord, we thank you that uh, You are the best and truest teacher. And your life was the best and most sinless life. Completely sinless. 
And so we pray that you'd be the head of the church at Hillcrest. And that you would lead and that all the leaders in this church, every one of us who has any even inch of influence anywhere, that we'd look to you again and again and again. Author and perfecter of our faith. Take us on a journey. Make us more like you. If our beliefs aren't in line with you, change them. Help us be renewed in our minds. If our actions don't align with what we say we believe or what the the scripture says is true, help us to change. Lord, we want to become like you, Jesus. We want to become like you in our thoughts and our actions and who we are. So lead us in this next year. Guide us. Keep us on the path towards truth and towards you. In the name of Jesus. Amen.